Go ahead and grab your Bibles and make your way to Isaiah 9, and we'll also be in Hebrews 4 today. So have your finger in Hebrews 4 as well. I'm excited to jump into these texts. Now, uh, this is our first Sunday of Advent, and over the next four weeks, we're going to be just in this one text, really. I'm not going to preach the same sermon every week. I promise you, you should come back next week and the week after as well. But uh, we're going to use this text as a launching pad into the whole of Scripture to consider this Advent season that we find ourselves in. And so let me just kind of talk for a second about Advent, about uh, what Advent is. Maybe you're new to the Advent language. Maybe uh, it's really familiar to you or or it's causing some uh, red flags to to go up or whatever else it might be. Let's just talk for a second about Advent. What, What we're doing in Advent is we're actually entering into kind of a mixed bag of realities. Uh, What I mean by that is is we find ourselves kind of in a tension or in an in-between period as God's people. On the one hand, we, we look back and we're celebrating that our deliverance has come. Jesus Christ has come. The son has been born and has been given to us. And we celebrate that at once we were in captivity to sin and to Satan and to death. And Jesus Christ, the son given to us, has released us from captivity through his work. So on the one hand, we look back and we celebrate that. On the other hand, what we're doing is we're looking forward with a longing, with an eager anticipation for his return. We want his return. We want him to restore all things. We want him to remake creation. We want to exist in his kingdom as his people where we will dwell with him forevermore and it will be even better than Eden. And yet we find ourselves in the in-between. If we can look at Isaiah 9 real quick and reread it, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. On the one hand, we're looking back and seeing the son has been given. On the other hand, we hear these promises of verse seven of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. And we look out into the world and we consider that doesn't seem to be our reality. Doesn't seem to be how things are matching up. And so we pray and we long and we seek after Jesus and his return and we yearn for it. But the overarching umbrella of the Advent season is one central truth. And the central truth is that God is both promise maker and promise keeper. Every promise that our God makes, he intends to keep. Back in Isaiah 7, we get this promise. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall bear a son and we shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in Isaiah nine, we have further promise about this son and and who he is and, and what he will do. And then we look forward to Luke chapter two, where we celebrate that the virgin has conceived and she has born a child and his name is called Jesus and he is God with us. We celebrate that God is promise maker and promise keeper. He has delivered on his promise to send his son to deliver us. And his son has done just that. 
Man in our sin, we have separated ourselves from God and we have created a chasm so wide that we cannot create a bridge large enough to to walk across it. But Jesus Christ unites God and man together. 100% God, 100% man in one person. Because he's God, he can save and deliver. Because he's man, he can fulfill the demands of the law in our place. We celebrate that God has kept his promise to send his son. And then on the other hand, we see further promises in Isaiah 9, the increase of his government and that he will carry all things on his shoulders, which is the Hebrew way to say that God in Jesus Christ has created all things and he is sustaining all things and he bears it up on his shoulders, meaning he carries that burden with ease. And we yearn and we long for the day in which he will return and restore and remake remake all things as our king, as the king of kings. So I don't know where you find yourself on this first Sunday of Advent in this in-between. I don't know if you're looking back and you're celebrating with great joy. I don't know how life looks for you right now. I don't know if you're just kind of in one of those mountaintop seasons where God has been so kind to you and you're really aware of it and he's present in your life and your time with him is growing and and everything in your life seems to be going smoothly. I don't know if you find yourself in that camp, but I'm willing to bet if I can put my chips on the table, most of us find ourselves in the other camp where we're looking for his return and we're longing for his return because we're really aware of how broken this world is. I can just look out right now and see the stories represented here at Story Church of of recent diagnosis that that put question marks on the blank page. I think about the the, the questions of jobs in 2020. Is that job going to come through? How are our finances going to look? I think about the people who are recently divorced and spent their first Thanksgiving alone or the people who have recently experienced death and are questioning a lot of different things. I see those stories. I'm aware of those stories. And what that should do within us in this Advent season is cause us to yearn for Jesus's return. And we don't yearn without hope. We yearn with great hope because hope has a name and he is Jesus. He has already come once and he has delivered us from our greatest problem. He is coming again and he will restore and remake all things and all all sad things will become untrue. Everything will be made right. And so as we jump into this Advent season, we wanna consider as a church, what does it look like to live in the in-between? where there's ups and there's downs, there's mountaintops and there's valleys, there's celebration and there's yearning. There's awareness of our sin and our suffering, but there's also great joy that we've been saved from our sin. We wanna step into that reality together and look to our savior, Jesus, each week. Now, a little bit of hard turn here. I have a question. I want some response to this, okay? I, I, it's feeling, feeling a little, a little uh, quiet in here. I think we're all a little tired after Thanksgiving and, and it's cold out. And we, you know, we think that 55 degrees in California is like freezing cold. We got our parkas out and our Ugg boots and, and, and hot cocoa in the hand. So a little bit of a hard turn here. All right, what are some of the most ridiculous names you've ever heard in your life? Some of the most ridiculous, come on, call it out. Princess. Princess, okay, that's, yeah. What else? Hey, hey, my mom's right behind you. She named me. 
I've never seen someone more red in my life. He's as red as those chairs. Thanks, John. What else? Mister. Mister. That was the first name. Okay, Mister. A couple more. God has established you. Like that was the name or? Okay. Wow. What's that? Lamangelo. Okay. Is his last name Ball? Lonzo Ball. All right. So I Googled the most ridiculous names and the top article, so I didn't do much searching here. Okay, the top article was from BuzzFeed, so you know it's 100% accurate. And it gave us the list of some of the 17 of the most ridiculous names as seen on birth certificates. So I just selected six of them because I liked them. And so here's some of those names. The first one, apparently the parents were poets because they like to rhyme. This is Vanderson Anderson. Okay. We got Vanderson Anderson. Uh, This next group of parents really liked cheap Italian food. So they named their daughter Olive Gardener, Olive Gardener. Okay. Um, it, keeping it in the Italian category, these parents named their child Precious Salami. Now, I don't know if that's a gender neutral name, so I don't know if it's a boy or girl there. Um, number four, going a different route from the comic book category, here is Robin Batman. Robin Batman, okay? I actually have a friend in Fort Worth named Neil Batman. That's his actual last name. So that's a pretty cool last name. Uh, number five, uh, uh, maybe the parents are authors here. The name is Paige Turner. Paige Turner <laughs> with an I, okay? Paige Turner. All right, and the last one, my personal favorite, Ninja Quest. Ninja <laughs> Quest. Isn't that awesome? All right. So celebrities who are known for their razor sharp intellect uh, have named some of their kids stuff like this. Gwyneth Paltrow, the sharpest tool in the shed, named her daughter Apple. Apple, okay. Uh, Jason Lee has a son that goes by the name of Pilot Inspector with a K for no reason. Um, Jay-Z and Beyonce can make music but cannot name kids. They have Blue Ivy. Um, All right, here's, I think Jamie Oliver and Juliet Norton might've been on shrooms when they named their kids, but here's what we got here. There's four of them. Poppy Honey Rosie, Daisy Boo Pamela, Buddy Bear, and Petal Blossom Rainbow. Okay, so uh, if you're being inspired now and you're pregnant, just avoid that one. All right, final one, last one. Frank Zappa. He has three kids, Moon Unit, Dweezel, and Diva Thin Muffin. Carb, aware of carbs, right? Thin muffins. Oh, man. All right. So clearly, we don't care about names. It's true of my family. When Katie and I were considering what to name our children, we did not name our children based upon what their names meant. We named our children based upon what we thought flows with Cunningham and sounded good to us. And so when Katie came to me, she said, let's name our daughter Peyton. I'm like, all right, Peyton Manning's at the top of his game right now. So let's go with that one. We don't have a kid named Brady for a reason. All right, we have a daughter that goes by the name of Peyton. Our son, Owen, he's inspired by my favorite theologian, John Owen. He's, he's a dead Puritan. I've read a lot of his works and, and I liked the name. So we went with Owen and we did not actually do any research on what their names mean till last week. And so... Here's what Peyton means. It's originally from England and it's a last name meaning from the fighter's farm, from the fighter's farm, okay? And then Owen is Welsh and it means young warrior. 
So I know why our kids are so aggressive. You know, they, they got those temper tantrums because of how we name them. It's our own faults. So in the Bible, naming was a significant part of a person's life. It was a significant part. A name was meant to sum up a person's being and character and activity in the world. You'll see things all over the scriptures. Like when someone gets converted, they're given a new name. Or you'll see in the scriptures when, when a woman who uh, is struggling with infertility for years finally conceives and has a child, they'll name the child something like, the Lord has heard my cries or the Lord provides. Naming is a significant part of the scriptures. And it's just not only in the scriptures, it's also throughout most of human history until America came in and messed everything up like we always do. What happened here is, that wasn't a shot on America, guys. It was a shot on how we name people. <laughs> throughout human history, we've seen people named according to what they did in the world. It was not only a person's character and, 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 and being, but it was also what a person does and contributes to the culture. So the town blacksmith, what was their last name? Smith. The town Cooper, the, 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 the person who made barrels in the town, their last name was Cooper, right? The person who did woodworking, what was their last name? <laughs> That's a good guess. Carpenter. They were a carpenter, right? You'll see carpenters all over the wood. I love that. <laughs> the reason why I'm talking about names here for a second is because during this Advent season, when we find ourselves in the in-between where we're looking back on deliverance and we're looking forward for the fulfillment of all of God's promises, what we're going to do is focus on the four names found in Isaiah 9. We're going to look at Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so for this Sunday, what we're going to focus in on is Wonderful Counselor. Whether you find yourself celebrating deliverance or longing for his return, what we all possess if we are in Christ is a wonderful counselor who is with us and who is for us. So considering naming, what does this name mean? Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful counselor. It's actually a combination of two Hebrew words. So the first word is, is for wonderful. This basically means that he, this son given to God's people, this Jesus is beyond understanding. He is incomprehensible. He is without comparison. As we're looking through the book of Colossians as a church, we have entitled the sermon series Matchless because we want to say that Jesus Christ is without rival, without comparison, without equal. He is matchless. And when we say we have a wonderful counselor, we have a counselor who is matchless. He fills us with wonder, with awe. When Isaiah says that he is wonderful, he's actually grasping at terms. He's creating words to try to describe who this Jesus is, who this son is. There is no legitimate terms in the human language that can sum up this son. So he's grasping at straws to try and create a word to, to fill how majestic and, and beautiful and glorious this son is. So when we are considering a name, we are considering first and foremost that he is beautiful and majestic beyond comprehension. He is awesome and not in the way we use awesome in 2019. He fills us with awe. He fills us with wonder. 
When we look to the sun given to us, it should fill us with humility because we are looking upon this glorious, beautiful counselor. So he is wonderful. He's also counselor. And and when Isaiah is saying counselor, he is saying he is the one who sits in a position of authority and he instructs or guides us in life. He shows us the way to go and the way not to go. And he does it from a position of authority. So if we can combine the two words, wonderful counselor, we can say it this way, that the son given to us in this Advent season is a supernatural source of guidance and instruction throughout life for those who are in desperate need of help. And that end of that definition is so important, in desperate need of help. This means that Jesus has come for all of us. Jesus has come for the worst among us. Any Office fans out there, you know how Michael describes Toby, you're the worst. Jesus came for the Tobies of the world. Jesus came for you and for me. He came for those who knew they needed help. You see, Jesus was not given for the healthy. Jesus was given for the sick. Jesus was not given for those who are alive. He was given for those who were dead in their sins and trespasses. Jesus was not given for the righteous. He was given for the unrighteous. Jesus did not come for those who have it all figured out. Jesus came for those who are confused. Jesus did not come for those who think they can save themselves. Jesus came for those who knew they are exhausted from trying to save themselves and they need someone else to do it. Jesus did not come for those who have it all together. Jesus came for those who don't have a clue. Jesus did not come for the prettiest, most put together among us. Jesus came for those who are recognized they are dirty and in need of cleansing. Jesus did not come for the bullies. He came for those being bullied. Jesus came for you and for me. We are all qualified according to these terms to need this counselor, to need this wonderful counselor because we are all desperately need a need of help. And, and if we can just for a second as a church, step into an honest moment, if we can just for a moment, take off the mask of performance, take off the mask of being pretty, take off the mask of having it all figured out and put together. And we can recognize that deep down, each of us is really, really aware of how sinful and flawed we all are. If we can all just be honest for a second, we can recognize that in our, in our most quiet moments, many of us feel like we're barely hanging on by a thread. If we can just be honest for a second, each of us knows that we have desperately attempted to save ourselves, but we continue to flounder and drown in our failed attempts. Each of us knows that we need Jesus. Each of us knows that we need a wonderful counselor. And we have him. Because the promise making God is the promise keeping God. Emmanuel, God with us. He is with us and he is a wonderful counselor with us. So what I wanna do with the remainder of my time is just move each of us one step closer to this wonderful counselor. I don't know where you are in your life with Jesus, but I wanna move one step closer to him. And I wanna do that by looking at Hebrews 4. So switch over to Hebrews 4 with me. Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest here, wonderful counselor, 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here are three things I want us to see about our wonderful counselor. Number one, our wonderful counselor requires honesty from us because he listens to us. Number two, our wonderful counselor desires help, desires to help us so we should look to be helped. And then number three, our wonderful counselor knows best so we should respond to him in trust. We'll put all of those up as we go. So first, as we move one step closer to our wonderful counselor, our approach to him requires honesty of us because he listens to us. So in 2017, Katie's mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And almost a year to the date, she eventually passed away from that pancreatic cancer. And, and, and we were thankful that she was in Christ. She loved the Lord and she is now healed and dwelling with him forevermore. But if you've ever experienced death of a close family member, you know uh, when they die, it doesn't make it easy just because they're in Christ. It doesn't make it easy just because they're with the Lord. So we were left kind of questioning some things and picking up some pieces. And some of the unique circumstances of, of Beth's passing was that uh, when Beth went into her, her final decline in the last few weeks of her life, Katie was about 35 or 36 weeks pregnant with Owen. Uh, and, and then when the funeral was held, she was 39 pre weeks pregnant with Owen. And, and during the third trimester, there was a little bit of complications. He was measuring really small, which if you've held my son, you know, no, he's not small, so I don't know what was going on there. Um, but she was experiencing some complications. So our doctor was like, no, you guys are not traveling. We lived in Texas. We lived a thousand miles away. And so we couldn't come back for the, the final couple of weeks or for the funeral. And so it just left some unfinished business, if we can say it that way, some things that closure that couldn't happen that usually happens at a funeral. And so our church family, recognizing all of these circumstances, they uh, paid for Katie and I to go see a biblical counselor named Greg. And when we began to see Greg and we still talk to him to this day, one of the things that became really, really clear to us in this counseling process was that the greatest way to handcuff Greg as a counselor is to not be honest with him. One of the greatest ways to free him up to do his job is to be totally transparent with him, totally honest with him. And when I'm saying be totally honest with him, I'm not saying we had to lay out the facts of the case for Greg. He knew the facts. He knew everything that happened. What Greg wanted honesty from is how we're dealing with the facts. Where are our emotion? Where's our hearts? How are we dealing with these things? What questions are we asking? What doubt do we possess? How are we hurting? How are we angry? How are we confused? He wanted total transparency from us. And when we come to our wonderful counselor, he demands total honesty from us. And he doesn't demand honesty from us in the way of facts. He has all the facts. He created and sustains all things. He ordains all things. He knows the facts. What Jesus wants from us is our total transparency in response to the facts of this life. And I retraced all of those stories just a minute ago that are going on in this room. Disease and debt and death and pain and, and suffering and questioning and all of these different things that each of us are walking through in life. Jesus knows the facts of the case. He wants to know, how do you feel in regard to that? 
Where is your heart at? Where are your emotions at? And friend, again, I want us to take off the mask and just say this. God's not afraid of our emotions. God created emotions. And Jesus, as the great high priest, as the wonderful counselor, is able to what? Sympathize with us. How can he do that? When he was in the flesh and he lived among us, Jesus experienced the full gamut of emotions that you and I feel therefore qualifying him to sympathize with us. You feel anger, Jesus felt anger. You feel sadness, Jesus felt sadness. You feel fear, Jesus felt fear. Go read the garden account. God is not afraid of your emotions. And when we have this invitation to come to the throne of grace, we have an invitation to be totally honest and transparent with our wonderful counselor. He is not afraid of you. He is not afraid of what you have to say. He wants to sit with you in the ashes and he wants to help you pick up the pieces. So how can you be honest with the wonderful counselor today? You see, I think all too often when we consider this idea of prayer and being with God and coming to the throne of grace, we think that we're kind of pestering God God's got better things to do. He doesn't have time for my useless prayers. Friend, that is false. That is a lie from the pit of hell. This is an invitation to come to the throne of grace. And he's saying, bring all of you all the time. And I'm available and I'm present with you and I am with you in this. He wants to hear from you. So how can you be honest with the wonderful counselor today? Where is your sin getting the best of you? And how can you confess that honestly to him and seek his help in it? Where are you doubting his presence in the middle of your circumstances of life? How can you be honest with him about that? What emotions are you feeling in response to the hurt that you've experienced in this life? Don't be afraid to cry out to God. If you're afraid to do that, you don't have confidence, go read the Psalms. We have an entire book of the Bible filled with emotions where David and others are coming to God saying, incline your ear to hear me. You feel distant, God. I can't sense you. I don't know where you are. Can you respond to me? Come to your wonderful counselor in honesty today and know that he will be present with you in the middle of it and he will respond to you in the middle of it. We can be honest with him because he is listening to us. You know how a counselor is listening to you? If you've ever seen a counselor, they respond to you. The worst counselors, you know what they're doing the whole time? Looking at the clock, looking out the window for their next client, pretending to jot down notes, but they're actually just doodling. I know Ross, you're not guilty of that, but, but uh, others are. Um, and, and then it comes time and you stop talking and they look up, they're like, oh, I'm supposed to respond here. And they don't. The best counselors are locked in with you. And they are present with you. And our wonderful counselor, man, he's sitting with you wherever you find yourself. And he's looking you dead in the eyes and he's embracing you. And he's saying, I am with you in this, speak to me. And you know that he's listening to you and how he responds to you. And if you ever are questioning whether or not God has responded, if you feel that God is silent, all you have to do is remember the gospel. He is always speaking and he is always responding. Our greatest problem is a sin problem and a separation from God. 
God problem. And we brought that problem to God and he solved it for us by the wonderful counselor hanging on a cross in our place and reconciling us back to our father. He has responded to our greatest need, our greatest hurt, our greatest pain in life. And he has brought us back to the father. If you are ever questioning whether or not God is responding to you in your need, look to the cross. He is always responding. Your wonderful counselor demands honesty because he is listening to you and responding to you. Next, if we bring our honesty to God, then we actually have to have a desire to be helped because our wonderful counselor desires to help. You heard it there in Hebrews 4, to find help in a time of need. We are coming to our counselor to seek help. A lot of times when we think about a counselor, we think about that song, I'll be your crying shoulder. I'm not going to sing it, but you've heard that song, right? Um, who sings that song, by the way? Is that Creed? Who sings that? Who? What's that? Huh? Aerosmith. Aerosmith. Wow. Way off. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it. A lot of times we think about a counselor in terms of that song, that a counselor is just supposed to sit and let you rest your head on their shoulder and cry. And there's certainly a place, there's absolutely a place for that with Jesus. But eventually the best counselors, what do they do? They grab your chin, they say, look at me and listen to me. Look at me, I wanna, I wanna help you, but you have to listen to me. Let's walk through this together. We can get through this together. And Jesus in being our wonderful counselor is ready to give us help in our time of need, to give us help in our trouble. He is the authoritative one who can instruct us and guide us in the way we should go in life. So we better listen to him. He wants to help us. And so we must genuinely desire his help. And oftentimes the help, the problem with this is that the help just doesn't look the way we want it to look, right? We like to define in our own terms what the help from God looks like. Jesus wants to define the help on his terms. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of times we're gonna to come to God in pain and in wounding and in suffering. And our primary prayer is gonna be, God, remove these things from my life. And that's absolutely a good prayer to pray. But most often what Jesus intends to do is say, I'm gonna leave the circumstances there, but I'm gonna show you that I'm gonna carry you through these things. I'm gonna show you your dependence upon me. I'm gonna show you that when you find yourself in a rock in a hard place, I am the rock there with you. He is intending to say, I'm not going to leave you. I have not abandoned you. I have not left you behind. I am with you and I will be with you on the other side of this. And the greatest help that God intends to give to us as our wonderful counselor is not helping us by in, in, uh, in necessarily changing the circumstances, but he wants to change our hearts. He wants to conform our hearts to his ways and he wants us to look like him and he wants us to understand how he works in this world. He wants to do the work of sanctification. In the words of J.D. Greer, it goes like this. While many people want to experience the benefits of help and healing, they don't want to go through the painful choices that must accompany healing. We want God to clean up the mess of our lives without dealing with the choices and patterns that got us into the mess. In fact, we have mixed feelings about the changes we are asking God to make. We like the concept of change, but, not, we don't really, but we're not really sure we want to do the hard work of change. I think of Augustine, who in his confessions described himself as praying, God, make me pure, just not yet. 
Do you really want God to change your life? Are you willing to deal with the things that he tells, tell, that Jesus tells you you must deal with? Jesus says, I can heal you. I can help you. Do you really want it? Do you desire Jesus's help? Do you desire to be helped by the wonderful counselor? Then fix your eyes upon him, not on your circumstances. In the words of Robert Murray McShane, he says, for every one look at yourself, give 10 looks to Christ. For every one look at your pain and your suffering and your circumstances, give 10 looks to Christ. And again, remember the cosmic problem has been solved in the cross of Christ. Therefore, he is gonna help us through everything in life. And we need to not fixate on ourselves or our circumstances and look to him and see that he is carrying us through all of life. Friend, he is helping you. He is always helping you. John Piper has a quote that says, God is always doing 10,000 things in our life. We might only be aware of three of them at any given time. God is helping you. Our wonderful counselor is helping you. And the greatest way he is helping you is by saying, I am gonna carry you through this. I'm gonna be present with you. You must desire to be helped by looking to Christ. Third, Our wonderful counselor knows best, so we respond in trust. So the reason why Katie and I saw Greg and continue to talk to him is because we understand that when we find ourselves in in hurting circumstances or hard times, that Greg is gonna see things more objectively and more clearly than we are. And we need to be honest with him. We need to seek his help. And then we need to listen to him as he responds to us. And we, we need to trust that he is seeing things more clearly and objectively than we are. And when we come to our wonderful counselor, we understand that he sees this world more objectively, more clearly and better than we do. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. His ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. He, he knows all things. Therefore, we trust that he knows what is best for us. And when he gives us a prescription for change or for life, what we respond in is submission, independence, in trust. When Greg said to Katie and I, hey, I think you guys should think about doing this or that. We didn't walk away saying, man, Greg's dumb. We shouldn't do those things. We walked away saying, okay, we don't really understand this but we're gonna trust Greg. We're gonna trust his training and his education and his experience and his love for Jesus and his love for the word of God. And we responded in submission to Greg and what he counseled us to do. And when we come to our wonderful counselor, we trust that the advice and counsel he is giving to us in life is the best thing for us because he knows best. So we respond to Jesus in trust. One of my favorite things about this text in Hebrews is that it says that Jesus was tempted in every respect, yet without sin. Jesus has faced every temptation that we have faced, and yet he qualifies to be the authoritative one because he lived without sin. He was spotless and blameless and pure. Therefore, he sits in that seat of authority to say, go this way, not that way. Trust me, listen to me. His without sinness, if I can qualify or coin a term, qualifies him to see life clearly and objectively and purely, and it qualifies him to be the one giving orders. However, listen to this. Not only does Jesus know what's best, he does what is best. 
he does what is best for us as well. Oftentimes when we think of Jesus as counselor or others as counselor, we think, man, they're just trying to tell me these things to make me miserable or cage me up or to to make my life harder, to tell me to do things. And that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus always does what is best for you and for me. He comforts in the middle of affliction. He is near the brokenhearted and contrite in spirit. He is working all things out for our good and for his glory. And he always intends for our joy in him to increase. Jesus does what is best. So when he tells us what to do and we respond in trust, not only can we trust that Jesus knows what is best, but we can trust that on the other end of our submission comes our good and our joy and life in him. We trust our wonderful counselor because he knows best and he does best. So friends, we must run to him. We must seek him. We must seek his wisdom in life. If you're facing some questions or you have to make a decision, you're not sure where to go, run to Jesus. James 1.5 says that if you seek Jesus and you seek his wisdom, he will give it to you without reproach. He will give you his wisdom and he will guide you and counsel you. And he does it through his word and he does it through community with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he, he does it when, as you spend time with him in prayer. But the ultimate point of him being our wonderful counselor is that he is present with us. He is sitting with us. He is listening to us. He is responding to us. He is guiding us. He is instructing us. He is doing what is for our best. So in this Advent season, we celebrate that Jesus, this wonderful counselor, is God with us. He came as a baby. He lived a normal life. He was was, uh, put to death in our place. He was resurrected on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now we find ourselves in the in-between, awaiting his return, awaiting his restoration. And when things feel out of whack and in chaos and broken, we can trust that the promise maker is the promise keeper. He has delivered us from our sin and captivity and he is returning again to restore all things. But in the middle, in the in-between, In the not yet, we have a wonderful counselor. And he bears this title because he listens to us, is available to us, and is present with us. He bears this title because he helps us, he comforts us, he reassures us. And he bears this title because he instructs us in the way to go through life. So for the believer in the room, how can you move one step closer to your wonderful counselor today? Is it speaking honestly to him? Is it actually burying your heart and your emotions and your fears before him? Is it sitting with him and listening to the help that he wants to offer you in his word? Is it yielding to his commands for your life in submission and in trust? What is it for you? How can you move one step closer to your wonderful counselor? And how can you trust that he is sitting with you in all of life? He's present with you and he's not going anywhere. For the unbeliever in the room, your step is clear. Take one step towards this counselor. He will save you. He will be with you and he will carry you through all of life. All he wants you to do is turn from your sin and trust in him. Look to him as your only source of hope and guidance and life. He will save you and he will be with you. What is your step towards this wonderful counselor? 
Now, in the coming weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the successive names here in Isaiah 9. We're going to look at Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace in addition to Wonderful Counselor. But for this next week, I want you to meditate on the fact that you have a wonderful counselor who is on your side and he's not going anywhere. Speak to him, be honest with him when you're facing questions and doubts and fears. Go to him, run to him, be with him. He's not going anywhere. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we... We do have a wonderful counselor in your son, Jesus. Thank you that he is majestic and and beautiful and glorious and authoritative and wise. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the means and the end to our salvation. He is the one who has delivered us from captivity and he is the one who is returning to restore and remake all things. So in this in-between, God, I pray you would encourage our hearts. Would you cause us to take our eyes off of ourselves and give 10 looks to our wonderful counselor, to look at him in faith, to look at him in hope, to look at him with joy and to find from him wisdom and life and help. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.